And I hope you guys were as blessed by the study through Chronicles as I was. And tonight is a pretty quick chapter, meaning lots of information. So when I get a chapter like this, I like to read through it, find the key points, then break it down and go from there. Please remember, I think I've said this almost every single message I've taught through Chronicles, these guys were given as examples, according to Paul. Examples of what to do and examples of what not to do. We've had some good examples here in Chronicles. Hezekiah showed us some good stuff. Josiah showed us some good stuff. Joash showed us some good stuff. We've also had some examples of what not to do. There are some evil, evil kings. And I just want to do a bit of a quick reminder here. Dustin, if you don't mind putting up those slides real quick. Some of these slides are ones that we've covered here before in the past, but it just is a nice little review and recap of what we've been going through here for the last few weeks. Okay. It's kind of hard to see some of this, so I'll just kind of hit the highlights here with you real quick. If you remember correctly, when we started in Chronicles, we first started talking about Saul. Saul was followed by David. We know David. We know all the stories of David, Bathsheba, Goliath, etc., then his son Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's reign, there was a split of the kingdoms. Rehoboam started reigning over Judah, Benjamin and Judah, those two tribes. That's what Chronicles follows. Chronicles focuses on Judah. If you go to the book of Kings, it focuses on both Israel and Judah. But for Chronicles, it's just Judah. Jeroboam became king over Israel, the ten northern tribes. So, This is ending here tonight. Can you go to the next slide here real quick? Won't go through all the kings, but this is Saul through Asa. That's about 140 years. 140 years. Next slide here. Then we went through Jehoshaphat. I love Jehoshaphat. Through Jotham. That's about another 140 years. Some of these kings you may remember. In fact, if you remember, there are Athelia. That's one queen. There was one queen that ruled over Judah as well. And if you remember correctly, she was a very evil woman that tried killing her grandchildren. Next slide. Here's the ones that we've done lately, Ahaz, and we've been talking a lot about Hezekiah, and you can see Josiah. Tonight, we're going to go pretty quick through here, through Jehoiada, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Now, the point is, this is about another 150 years. You put all this together, you're talking, what, 1, 2, 3, 350, 390? You're talking 450 years here of history. Now, that sounds like a lot. But when you're reading through it, it can go through pretty quick. Some of these kings had long reigns. Remember, Manasseh had a reign of 55 years. So you just covered in First and Second Chronicles 400-plus years of the history of Israel as a nation. What's going to happen here tonight is pretty straightforward. Babylon's going to come and defeat them. Babylon's going to take them over, and then Babylon's going to ship them away to Babylon. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But tonight we're going to end the nation of Judah. And from this point forward... Israel never has another king until who? Jesus Christ. When he comes back, he becomes the king. And that's what we're going to talk about here too as well. So let's get into this tonight. 2 Chronicles 36. Key verse, verse 15, please, of the chapter. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. See, here's the thing. When you read through the Old Testament, God comes across as always being angry. He's always angry. Have you ever met some of those parents sometimes would you look at them and the parents always look like they're upset and angry and you wonder why and then you see their kids and you're like, oh, now I get it. (laughs) Took you a while on that one. God's children, Israel, is a disobedient, stubborn child and he's constantly, constantly reprimanding them, warning them, rebuking them, disciplining them. 
And see, the problem is sometimes we only focus on that. God's upset at Israel again. Now he's sending the Assyrians to take him out. God's upset at Israel. Excuse me, Judah. Now he's sending Babylon. Look here, though. Read this one more time. Verse 15. He sent them warnings. If you go back and you read Isaiah, and you go back and read Jeremiah, and you go back and read Ezekiel, they're constantly telling Israel and Judah, wake up, guys. This is not what God wants. He loved them so much that for four plus centuries, he warned them. He warned them about this is what's going to come. This is a verse of grace. And look, he had compassion on his people. Listen, these guys deserve judgment a whole lot quicker than four plus centuries. But God had compassion on them. He loved them. But what did they do? Verse 16, they mocked, despised, scoffed. Finally, the Lord said in verse 16, the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. There's no remedy to this, and there's nothing left that we can do. There's nothing left that we can do. We have to get much more serious now in our discipline. We have to get much more serious in our rebuke. If we do not get much more serious in our discipline and rebuke, it's going to get worse. You as parents, you know that. You see your kids. You see them do something they shouldn't do. You don't want to discipline them. You don't want to stop them. You don't want to correct them. You want to be the loving, fun parent. But you realize it just keeps building and building, and eventually you have to love them enough. You have to love your kids enough to say, I have to tell you no, and I have to discipline this. God, after 400-plus years, finally tells Israel and Judah, enough's enough. I have sent messengers. I have warned you. You're mocking it. You're despising it. You're scoffing it. I have to step up and do something now. And that's what the Lord does. He took care of the ten northern tribes. Their discipline was Assyria in 722 B.C. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, their discipline was Babylon in 586 B.C. But when somebody comes and tries to convince you how nasty the God of the Old Testament is, no, he's not. Verse 15, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's sending warnings. Please remember that. Please remember that. Second point here real quick that we need to talk about as we go through some of these points. This is when Daniel is taken captive and led away. This is what happens. If you look in the reign of Jehoiakim, which would be in verses 5 through 8, Babylon takes some of the people away. And this is when Daniel is taken away probably as a young teen and is then taken to Babylon, just to give you a little bit of perspective here. This also is when Lamentations is written. If you look in verses 15 on, the fall of Jerusalem, this is when Jeremiah is writing the book of Lamentations. So contemporaries at this time is Jeremiah. He's living during this time, constantly warning Israel, excuse me, constantly warning Judah, don't do this. And Jeremiah is a wonderful book. If I remember correctly, it's like 52 chapters. But the thing about the book of Jeremiah is he never has one person listen to him. Can you imagine that? Preaching for 52 chapters for decades and you never have one convert. But he did his job. He warned them. He told them. Well, they scoffed, they despised, etc., verse 16. So this is when Daniel is taken away. This is when Jeremiah is writing lamentations. And we also know, too, that this is going to last, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And the way they got 70 years is this. You remember there's something called the Sabbath year rest. That means every seventh year you got the year off. Now just think about this for a second. Think about this. Imagine your boss coming to you and saying, hey, here's the deal. This is how we work here. Every seventh year, you don't work. You take the whole year off. No catch, no nothing. So you take the whole year off. Well, what do I do for pay? You don't worry about pay. We'll make sure everything's taken care of. We'll make sure you have food. We'll make sure you have housing. We'll make sure everything's taken care of. We want you to take a full year off. 
So imagine you're working there at your business, and then six years come up, and it's time for your Sabbath year. You get your whole year off. And so what happens is you tell your boss, no thanks. Now, isn't that about the dumbest thing in the world? Israel did this for 490 years. Divide that by seven. They missed 70 Sabbath years. 70 years where God says, take a rest. Take a rest from the land. So what he does is he says, I'm going to have Babylon come in. And part of the discipline is I'm going to take them, excuse me, take you out of Jerusalem for 70 years. So the land lays desolate. The land gets its 70 years off because that's the deal. Then after 70 years, I'll send you back. So that's why they go to Babylon for 70 years, because they owed God 70 Sabbath years, over 490 years, a total of 70. So then what happens is they start coming back. And I'm just going to throw some of this information out at you. The first person to come back is Zerubbabel. He comes back to start rebuilding the temple. After him becomes Ezra. Ezra comes back and he brings people back. And then you have Nehemiah come back a few years later and rebuild the walls. So you can just kind of get a feel here of what we're dealing with. So as we go through this chapter, there's lots of information. There's lots of names. Always remember the key, verses 15 and 16. God loves them. He has compassion on them. He is warning them. He is begging them. He is pleading with them. Do not go down this path of sin. They will not listen. So since they will not listen, they're mocking, despising, scoffing. Look at the end of verse 16. The wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. The only thing God can do is say, I have to judge you. That's actually grace, that's actually mercy, that's love. Remember, as we go through this, this is when Daniel was living. This is when Jeremiah is writing Jeremiah and Lamentations. And it builds up to the land needs 70 years. And that's their punishment, is 70 years in Babylon. Now, any quick questions, comments about the background and the history of this before we get going into the rest of it? Yeah, yeah David. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. The more compassionate, the more loving on, that he was on them, the more severe their punishment is. There's a little bit of truth to that because what happens is every time we reject the compassion, grace, and mercy of the Lord, our heart gets a little harder. And if you know anything about when the heart gets harder, it takes something harder to break the hard heart. And so what happens is these people kept rejecting the Lord decade after decade, century after century. The heart became hard. And so God says, I have to do something really big to get your attention. Really big. And you all know somebody who's constantly rejecting the Lord. I've really come to the conclusion after walking with the Lord for a couple decades, sometimes the most loving thing I can do is completely back out and just really say, I've planted seeds, I've prayed, I've done everything. It's between them and the Lord. See, because there's a part of my pride that thinks if I could just have one more conversation with them, if I have one more conversation, I could get a hold of their heart. If I just have one more meal with them, I can fix that marriage. No, I can't. It's between them and the Holy Spirit. I can point them in the right direction. I can plant seeds. I can give them scripture. But ultimately, it's when their heart softens enough to say, Lord, this is not how we want to live. That's when things will change. For the nation of Israel and for the kingdom of Judah, it took something really big to get their attention. Really big. Anybody else got anything here before we go on? Okay. So let's talk about some of these guys. And you know what? There's really not a good one to focus on tonight. So let's just kind of hit these guys here real quick. Josiah dies in battle last week, chapter 35. So we pick it up in verse 36. Then the people of the land took Jehoziah, the son of Josiah, made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoziah was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months. You're going to notice these reigns are very short. 
There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of turnover here. What happens in verse 3? Now the king of Egypt opposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a town of gold. If you remember correctly last week, Necho, the king here of Egypt, is coming through, and Josiah says, I'm going to fight you in battle. Necho says, you don't want to do this. I'm on a mission from God to do what I'm doing, and you're getting in the way of it. Josiah got in the way. Josiah died. So what Necho does as king is he comes and he basically says, listen, you guys are mine now. You messed in something you shouldn't have messed. One of my favorite verses I tell my boys all the time, it says in the Proverbs, do not grab a lion by the ears. The whole point is grabbing a lion by the ears is like getting involved in someone else's argument. I tell the boys, if you see an argument going on, if the Lord has called you to be a peacemaker, be a peacemaker. Don't ignore the spirit. But a lot of times, just butt out. Pray. Don't get involved. And some of you know that from personal experience. You get involved with something that has nothing to do with you. It's like grabbing a lion by the ears. Not a real smart thing to do. Josiah should have stayed out of this. He didn't. He was killed. So now Necho, king of Egypt, says, okay, guys, you're mine. Well, he didn't really like the idea of Jehoshia being king. So what's he do in verse 4? Then the king of Egypt made Jehoshia's brother Elikim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoshia, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. Gets confusing, doesn't it? Jehoshia's king. Necho of Egypt comes and says, you're mine now. And by the way, I don't like you ruling, so I'm putting my own ruler in place who's going to follow me and not rebel and not fight. And to prove my power over him, I'm going to change his name. You're going to see a lot of name changes tonight. That's the way the world had power over these guys. Remember, as a Jew, your name meant something. And so they go and change these names. Now, some of these names still sound very godly, but it's still a power thing is I'm taking your name and changing it. It's just like they did with Daniel. One of the first things they did to Daniel was he, they changed his name to say, you're now ours. So Necho, king of Egypt, gets rid of the other king. He puts this king in he wants in place and basically says, verse 3, you're going to pay me. You're going to pay me every time I want something. What happens in verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as God. See, now, verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. See, what happened is Egypt now is no longer the world power, so Babylon comes in. See, Israel has no power. Jerusalem has no power. They've been defeated. They're just going to get passed from kingdom to kingdom to kingdom. So it goes from Assyria, then it goes to Egypt, then it goes to Babylon, then it goes to the Medes and the Persians, then to the Greeks, and to the Romans. And that's when you have the New Testament is when Rome is in power. And then what happens is Israel just ceases to exist until 1948, one of the greatest prophecies ever fulfilled. They come back as a nation. But here right now, Babylon is now king. Well, what happens is Babylon comes in and they want their own guy in place. Verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. My God is stronger than your God. Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, and what was found against him, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Now it says in verse 9, Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now I've met a lot of eight-year-olds. I don't know if I've ever found one I could say did evil in the sight of the Lord in three months. That's pretty impressive. Second Kings actually says that he was 18. 18. And if you have a study Bible, you may have a little note there in verse 9 that says something out of being 18. That probably makes more sense that he was 18 years old when he became king. 
Well, what happens is verse 10, at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Babylon now comes back and says, I don't want you to be king. I want my own king set up again. And every time they come, what do they do? They take more from the temple. Now, we eventually see this in Daniel. I believe it's in Daniel chapter 3 when they give the great feast. And so as they're giving this great feast, they want to prove once again their God is bigger than the Jews' God. And that's when they say, bring out all the articles from the temple. And as they're feasting and mocking God, that's when literally the handwriting of the wall appears. So if you wonder how did all those elements get to Babylon, right here. Every time Babylon comes, they take a little bit more. What's happening is this. Babylon's in power. They set their king up. Their king rules for a while. Then that king rules, excuse me, rebels. And so Babylon sends the army. Kind of disciplines them a little bit, sets up a different king, takes more people back, takes more possessions back. They do this a couple times. It eventually reaches the point where they say enough is enough, and that's what happens here. Look in Zedekiah, verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 12 is so great. Do you got a co-worker, a friend, a family member? you're just talking to i mean you're loving them and they're not listening they're not listening in any way whatsoever it doesn't mean what you're saying is wrong it doesn't mean that you're not spirit filled it does not mean that you're not in god's will it just means what verse 12 they don't want to listen they don't want to listen i don't know how many times i used to walk away from a counseling session or a message or witnessing to someone and it didn't have as much fruit as i wanted and i put all that burden on me oh i should have said this or i should have done that oh i bet if i would have shared that scripture no holy spirit's good he'll take care of that he'll lead he'll guide i don't have to carry that burden what it comes down to in verse 12 some people just don't want to hear They didn't want to listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had an awfully difficult ministry, if you want to read the book of Jeremiah. So what happens with Zedekiah, verse 13, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, and he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. There's a siege that goes on here for about a year and a half. This is when the book of Lamentations was written. If you've ever read that book, it's a very depressing book. And what happens in Lamentations, you hear uh, stories about the Jewish women eating their own children because it's the siege is going on from Babylon for about a year, year and a half. And you may say, once again, how can a God of love do this? This is not the God I want to serve. But did you catch verse 14? Moreover, all the leaders of the priest and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The people were in utter spiritual rebellion. They wanted nothing to do with God. God is trying to get their attention. The last thing he does is finally say, fine, I'm giving you over to Babylon. What were they doing? Verse 13, stiffening their necks, hardening their hearts. That's what they were doing. And so these people constantly rebelled again and again, and God finally said, I have to send you into, if you will, spiritual time out for 70 years in Babylon to get your attention. And then when you get out of that 70 years, you'll be ready to be a new people that serves me. And you see that. They rebuild the temple through Zerubbabel. They get their hearts back to the Lord in the book of Ezra. And then in Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls. And they come back, and they're spiritually focused. But they had to go to spiritual time out for 70 years to get their attention.
which then takes us up to verses 15 and 16, which we read. Now, any quick questions, though, over any of those kings, the histories of that? Yeah, David. A lot of them would, but according to the book of Ezra, when they come back and they see the temple being rebuilt, there's still enough people that were old enough to remember the original temple, and it says in the book of Ezra that those people just weep and weep and weep. Because what happens is they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, and this temple that's been rebuilt is nothing like it. So, yeah, there are some people that were still old enough to remember. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, verse 4 with the Egyptian king changing uh, the Judas king name. Mm-hmm. Yep. We know Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. That's part of what the Babylonians did. Every single nation had a different way of way they kind of conquered things. The Assyrians, for example, the way they kind of worked at it is they would intermix you in and you would become this mixed group of people, this mixed race of people. And that's why when you look in the New Testament time, the Jews hate the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a mixed race of people. They were Jewish and Assyrian together. So that's how the Assyrians did it. The Babylonians, the way they did it is, listen, we're completely taking you out of our culture. We're going to give you a new name. We're going to teach you our language. We're going to train you in our life. And so you're not even going to remember what it's like to be a Jew. Every nation did it differently. The Babylonians bring out the best ones that they have. And I can't remember if it says here or if it says in uh, Kings. I think it must have said in Kings. Basically, the only people left at this time were the old and the poor that the Babylonians didn't want. That's why Daniel was taken. He was young, he was strong, he was smart, and we're going to indoctrinate you into Babylonian culture. You're going to talk like a Babylonian, you're going to think like a Babylonian, you're going to act like a Babylonian. Really no different than the world. That's why the book of Daniel is such a wonderful book, wonderful book, especially for teens to study and read, because what they did to Daniel was they tried to strip him of everything and make him a Babylonian, but Daniel stayed faithful to the Lord. Same thing is happening to our youth today. The world is throwing everything you can imagine at them, trying to take them out and just strip them of anything and just make them like the world. And we can see Daniel being bold enough to take a stand, something we can learn from that too. Anybody else have anything about the historical background or context of this? Okay, well, let's see what happens. We did verses 15 and 16, verse 17. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, as the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, he had no compassion on young man or virgin. On the aged or the weak, he gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. And once again, you'll see that in the book of Daniel when they give the great feast. Verse 19, then they burned the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. So they rebuild the temple through Zerubbabel. You see that being mentioned in Zechariah and the book of Ezra. You see the walls being rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah. Verse 20, and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And we've talked about that with Daniel. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Remember, they went 490 years without having a Sabbath year rest, so therefore their spiritual timeout was 70 years. So this is the end of Judah, Benjamin. This is the end of Jerusalem. This is where it stops. So at this point, there's no longer another king of Israel. It does not happen. You have different people lead. Ezra leads for a little bit, if you want to look at it from that perspective. Nehemiah leads for a little bit. You have some stuff that happens in Malachi, etc. But by the time we re-pick up their history, 
back in the New Testament times of Jesus, Rome is the world power. So Israel does not have another king until Jesus himself rules and reigns on the throne. And this is a dark time. They're in captivity. But you know what? In this dark time, guess what happens? You got Daniel. See, God always has a glimmer of light in the dark time. That's what I love about the Lord. You heard us when we studied through the book of Revelation. Anytime you see judgment, there's always grace. There's always grace. And right now, if you're here tonight and it's a dark moment of your life, I'm telling you right now, there's there's always a little bit of light. There's always a little glimmer. For them, it's Daniel. Then it's going to be Ezra. Then it's going to be Nehemiah. But there's always hope. What happens, verse 22? Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jerusalem might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and all put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now before you think that sounds like we're leaving it at a cliffhanger, just jump over one book to the right, Ezra. Look at verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, it's the same verse. Ezra just continues this history. So if you are following this chronologically, what would happen is, verse 21 ends, you would go read the book of Daniel right now. Because that's where Daniel picks up. Daniel is a young kid. What happens in Babylon? Daniel lived until the first year of the reign of Cyrus here. So then after Daniel's death, now you would pick it back up in verse 22 and you'd go right into the book of Ezra then. So from verses 21 to 22, there's a 70-year span. That's the book of Daniel. And then you see God being faithful. Listen, 70 years is what you owe me, guys. And that's what they did. They did their 70 years. And then God in his infinite grace and mercy says, I'm sending you back. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the walls. Start over again but my focus being on me. That's what I love about the Lord. I love about the Lord. He doesn't discipline me one millisecond more than what he has to. He's a God of grace and mercy. He doesn't want to discipline me. What he wants to do is love me. He only disciplines with me when I have to have it. When I'm a disobedient spiritual child, he has to take care of it. God could have sat there and said, I'm done with you, Israel. But he says, no. I said it's a 70-year discipline. It's a 70-year discipline. And then I'm sending you right back to try this again. I love it. You've got to love grace and mercy. It's so easy on these verses to focus on the death, the destruction, the 70 years. Instead, you've got to focus on the grace and mercy. Seven years later, they get another chance again. And what a beautiful picture this is. Have they got anything they want to say here as we get ready to finish up in Chronicles? Okay. Let's make some final points here. Go back with me one more time to the point of repetition. Relook at verse 15 with me and let this verse sink into your heart. God sent them warnings, sent them messengers, because he had compassion on them. He, he warned them. He loved them. Look at verse 16. They mocked. They despised. They scoffed. The Lord said, there is no remedy. I have to do something. But even during this time of darkness, he gives us Daniel. Then he gives us Ezra. Then he gives us Nehemiah. God will always give you grace. You may be in a difficult spot right now. I tell you this, the Lord's loving you. He's trying to speak to you. He wants to speak to your heart. And if you're going through a difficult time, know that he's a God of love, grace, and encouragement. And if you're going through a time right now, and let's just be honest, maybe you're in a little bit of a spiritual rebellion right now. Guess what? The Lord is warning you. He's giving you warning. He's sending people into your life to speak to you, to say, I am here. 
So I want to close with, can you go with me to Psalm 23? And I know you guys all know this. Let's finish with Psalm 23. Psalm 23. You know that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now just, just think about those first three verses. You have a shepherd that watches over you. Think about the biblical definition of a shepherd. Somebody who cares and is watching is always overlooking you. You may think you're flying solo right now. You're not. The shepherd's watching. He wants you to lie down in green pastures, soft green grass. He wants to take you still waters. He wants to spiritually, verse 3, take care of your soul. He wants to lead you. Now here's the question. Do you want to be led? Well, I don't want to be led. Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Rod and your staff. What was the purpose of a shepherd's rod and staff? What well, was there to protect the sheep, right? If some animal came, you would use your rod and your staff to do what? Fight them off. You know what the other purpose of the rod and staff was? If the sheep's not doing what's supposed to be doing, you bop them on the head. That rod and staff protected the sheep from animals that would cause harm, but the rod and staff also did what? Gave a little bit of a bump to get their attention to say, listen, that's not a good path to go. God loves you enough to bump you on the head if you're going down a path you shouldn't go. Now, how does the Lord bop you on the head? Teaching, godly men and women in your life, Holy Spirit speaks through them. The Holy Spirit just convicts you in your heart through your time of daily devotions, etc. Remember, one of the most loving things that the Lord can do is to convict you to say, this is a path you don't want to go. What we have read throughout Chronicles is there's 400 plus years of God saying to his children, don't do this. Don't go down this path. Finally, 400 plus years later, God says, I have to do this. There is no other remedy. I've warned you. I've sent prophets. You didn't listen. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm not saying this to make you worried, nervous. But is the Lord speaking to your heart right now saying there's something that needs to be different? If he is, listen. Listen to that love. Listen to that grace. Listen to that mercy. That's his way of saying, I want to do this. I want to do this in your life. And Chronicles is there once again to do what? Remind us of what to do, but also to remind us of what not to do. Let's learn from these guys. And then let's take that forward in our walk with the Lord, too. So it's always exciting. We get to start something new next week. And I'm kind of praying about what that is. Got a few ideas. Just keep that in prayer. So I got two by fours in my way. I can't see what time it is. I think it's about a quarter till there, it looks like. So anybody have any final questions here? Yes, Shirley. What do I think about our nation compared to what they're going through? I think God is judging us. Um, I think our nation, compared to what Judah is going through right now, is very, very, very similar. And I think the most difficult part about this, you know, Richard hit on this a couple weeks ago when he talked about Josiah. Josiah was willing to get the nation back in order and focus on it. And, you know, we know what the Word says. The Word says that if we as a people decide to, as a people to follow the Lord, God will bless us. There's no doubt about that. But the question comes up is, do the people want that? And as of right now, just looking at the nation, looking at the world, it looks like the majority of the people do not want to walk down the path of the Lord. So what do we do with that information? Well, it's interesting we're talking about the book of Jeremiah. 
Because what did Jeremiah do? Jeremiah just kept warning him. Because he just constantly kept warning him. And remember, Jeremiah, now be careful with this, Jeremiah was considered anti, anti-Israel, anti-Judah. He was not considered a patriot because he actually spoke against the nation by saying, nation, this is not right. And what happens in the book of Jeremiah is all these false prophets are raised up and all the false prophets and say, there's nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be great. It's fine and dandy. This is the best path we could go down and God is going to bless us. And Jeremiah was the only prophet that had the guts to stand up and say, no, this is not the path that God wants us to do. This is not. And what happened is the prophets looked at Jeremiah and said, you don't love our nation. You don't love our people. And so what was considered Jeremiah, he'd be considered, if you would, almost anti-American because he had the guts to stand up and say, this is not the nation that we're supposed to be. We as Christians, when we start standing up and saying, this is not the nation that God has called us to be, we start looking like the bad guys. Because what happens is we're not the minority on a lot of moral issues. And it really comes down to this. And just, re- just remember these points that we have said so many times. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I actually represent the kingdom of heaven to the nation of America. That's what God has called me to do. It does not mean I'm not against this nation. I love this nation. We have the freedom to meet here on a Wednesday night openly and publicly talk about Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. We had the freedom a couple weeks ago to go up to Dearborn, Michigan, go door to door and talk to Muslims and tell them about Jesus Christ. What a beautiful blessing that is. But the truth is, we're in the minority on a lot of these uh, issues. And so what happens is the world wants us to jump in and say, agree with us. I can't. You know, as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven, I can't agree with this. As a servant of God most high, I can't agree with this. And so I got to take a stand and say, this is not something I can agree with. And sometimes we're looked at as the bad guys then, just like Jeremiah was. What does this mean for our nation? I don't know what it means for our nation. Um, You know, sometimes I look at our nation, and I think it looks like a sinking ship. And I guess if the ship is sinking, I think my job is to get as many people on the lifeboats as I possibly can. And so that's my goal is just to say, I want to tell people about Jesus Christ. Remember, and I'm not being unpatriotic. Please don't take it that way. America does not go into heaven. Now, Americans can go into heaven, but not America. God has never called me to save the nation. He's called me to save the people that live in this nation. And I think we've got to remember as believers, our focus is our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, that we have a sphere of influence around. And just like Jeremiah, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to love you. And I hope you're going to want to jump on the lifeboat with me because the ship is sinking. The ship is sinking. And what are we going to do about that? So I don't know if I answered your question there, Shirley, or not, but I'm glad you asked it too. Actually, I don't know if you guys do or not, but Greg Laurie has a great daily devotional, and his daily devotional the last few days has all been about the nation, the nation getting spiritually back where it's supposed to be, and us as a people, you know, trying to do that there. You know, America is very silent in end times prophecy. If you read through the Bible, you do not see America being mentioned. So, anybody else have anything here before we kind of close up? Okay. Hey, let's pray this. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, I can't get past this verse that you send warnings, that you're compassionate, that you're loving. Lord, I love that. I love that. Your word says in Ezekiel that you have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Lord, help us to have that same heart of compassion, to be lights and witnesses, whatever sphere of influence we're around. Lord, and your word also told us tonight to not mock, despise, or scoff at the prophets. Lord, help us to have ears to hear what you're saying and then go out to be a light and a witness. Lord, help us to be like Jeremiah, to keep preaching even when no one's listening. 
to just stand for truth. Help us to be those people that you've called us to be. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And I pray, Lord, that whatever area we're in, be it at school, at work, at home, that we would just have the Holy Spirit be upon us. Just anoint us, Lord, to really be the people you've called us to be, to step out of our comfort zones, to go out there and be a light and a witness as your spirit leads. Let it start with us. Lord, your word says in Peter that judgment begins at the house of God. Lord, let it start with us. And then, Lord, just be that ripple that goes out representing you. Not not about Harvest Fellowship, not about us as people, but just you, Lord. Represent Jesus Christ in all we do. Give us that heart and that passion. I pray for every one of these children that are going to walk through the doors on Thursday and Friday that would be a focus on you, just a focus on you, Lord. And I know there's other VBSs going on around right now, too. I pray that whatever kids are going there, that there would just be a focus on you. Help us be a light and a witness. Be with Northcrest on uh, Sunday just to minister to the people over there. And, Lord, give us wisdom on what you want us to go through next week. And, Lord, thank you for the rain. We love you and we praise you. Oh, and Lord, we think of Dan Hoyt on Friday. Just wisdom, guidance, and direction. Think of Colleen Phillips, uh, just recovering from foot surgery. She asked for prayer. Thank you for the great answered prayer for Connie. We just thank you for that. And Lord, um, talked to Cindy Nepley today, and she wanted to pass along how great she's doing. Lord, thank you for that. Two weeks ago, open heart surgery, and she's doing great. We love you and we praise you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Hey, be safe out there. Uh, I don't know if the storm's still going on or not. Be safe out there. Thanks for coming out. You guys have a blessed, blessed evening.